electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The great debate right now, who is really in charge of this market, the bulls or the bears? Why that answer means everything, of course, to your money. And joining me to discuss it, Josh Brown, Bryn Talkington, Bill Baruch, Jim Laventhal. Let's check the markets, see what we are doing this hour. Stocks are tracking for four down days in a row, the worst week since March. NASDAQ's on track right now to break its eight-week win streak as well. Uh, NASDAQ's higher today, though. But you see the Dow is a modest loser. S&P is a modest winner. So, Jim, I feel like... We need to have this conversation because I still feel like we don't have a definitive answer. Yeah, we don't. Who's in charge? The bulls or the bears? The momentum has been on the bull side. You felt a little bit better about your own case and about where you thought this market was going. And here we are. And the truth be told, Scott, I don't feel that good right now. Now, I'm not, and let me be clear for everyone, I'm not changing my stance. I think 2024 is going to be fine. But on the margins, the last week has made me more negative. Now, let me put this into context. I know why, but go ahead. Yep, yep, and I'll get right there. But let me put it into context of the broadening or the narrowing of the rally. You go back three Fridays ago, three weeks ago, we got that uh, labor market report. We debated whether it was Goldilocks or not. But what happened after that, equal weight S&P 500 rallied relative to the S&P 500. Small caps rallied versus the S&P 500. That went on until last Wednesday when the Fed spoke and they said two more rate hikes. Now, granted, that's only one more than the market had expected, but they're doubling down. You know, the, the Powell testimony, various other governors are that's saying, right. hey, we're doing two. Bowman, Waller overnight was was hawkish and as, if you, as well. This is the sort of the one thing that you've said can upset your own thesis on the market is a more hawkish Fed, a more aggressive Fed than you think they should be and would be. But they're they're certainly talking like they will be. They're not backing down. They're not backing down. And it doesn't matter whether I think they should or should not. It doesn't matter whether I think inflation should justify them stopping. It doesn't matter. They're being consistent. And I've got to respect it. Um, Now, I also am going to respect the fact that the market's up, whatever it is, about 22 percent off the October highs. I am taking October lows. October lows. Yeah, get that right. I am taking a little bit of money out of the market, but I want to make this clear. And I know you're very good at, Scott, at making sure I don't speak out of both sides of my mouth. I am positive on the medium and long term. Okay, so I see 2024 resuming good profit growth, and I think the market's going to focus on that. But I think there's a danger that as the Fed continues to raise rates, in particular, the regional banking system is going to have a little bit of a problem here. It's going to have a little bit of a problem with deposit costs. I'm taking off that regional bank uh, index trade. Didn't work out so great. It was down about 9% from when I put it on. But I've just got to get out of the way of the Fed right now. All right. So, Josh, um, momentum. I think you would agree has has been on the side of the bulls of late. You said as much in our conversation yesterday on Closing Bell. 
But I guess my question at this point would be, can the Bulls really be in charge with, as Jim says, a more hawkish Fed, whether it's Powell, Bowman, Waller, or whoever, with valuations at 19 times, which some say are too stretched in this environment, and with an economy that's weakening, claims up, consumer, uh, you know, I don't know, some say it's going to be tapped out soon. Look at what the 210 spread is doing. Can the Bulls truly be in charge in that backdrop? Well, first you have to decide whether or not the economy is weakening or normalizing. And if you're in the normalizing camp, then you recognize most of what we've been through in the last three years is just completely aberrant, way off the charts in so many respects. And so to the degree in which we view um, an economic slowdown is really just going back to trend growth and uh you know, kind of like lapping some of the, the wildness of the 2021, well, is that what 2022 you think? period. Is that what you think? Because there are those who well, suggest we're, we're going to have below trend growth, including the Fed chair himself. I mean, you, cert- you certainly could have a period of below trend growth. Yeah. But you can have that and it not tip all the way over into something worse. I mean, it's, it's happened before historically. So we had, look, we had... Uh, This question of, like, can the bulls remain in control with the Fed staying hawkish? Well, what do you call the last eight months? You know, we're we're living through that now. That that is literally what's been going on. So things could change. I'm only talking about what's currently occurring. I'm not saying there aren't other possibilities out there. So if you focus on what's occurring right now, the S&P is not cheap, given the rate at which uh, rates have gone up and what we still think they could do from here. And that's why I think the big story this summer is the rotation and the catch-up trade. And Jim referenced the equal weight. I'll, I want to talk about small caps for a moment. The Russell 2000 advanced decline line is now at its highest level since April. Um, the S&P 500 advanced decline line is still one standard deviation above its mean. Last week, it was two standard deviations of the mean, which maybe is too hot. You've got a lot of stocks working beyond just the mega cap, you know, seven, the magnificent seven or the mega cap 50. To me, the, the, the price action is more important than the opinion action. So that's what people are actually doing. 12% of the Russell 2000 stocks are now above their 50-day moving average. The rally is very early, um, but that's the highest since right before the Silicon Valley Bank episode. Mm-hmm. And that's a double over last week's reading. Um, so what is the valuation case for that rally to continue? If we're saying the fuel for the next leg higher for the market is going to be the small stocks, how sustainable is that? Well, well if you look at... Uh, P.E. ratio, Mm -hmm. uh, S&P 500 P.E. is 18.8. Small and mid-cap stocks are an average of 13. So there is room for that to continue. And if it does, it's really tough to say that the bears are in control. Well, but I'm just talking about things as they stand right now. I know that. But to answer your question, in part, Dubrovka Lakos Brent over at J.P. Morgan says some argue the next leg up for the market will be supported by laggards. Right. And he's talking about some of these more cyclical areas of the market that have watched tech, technology stocks, comm services, and in some cases discretionary, although it's a very small portion of that sector, just run away with the race. But you do have industrials up 7.5% month to date, materials up 65 small caps up 55 and financials up 4 <coughs> Excuse me. He suggests that it's going to be a tall order for that to continue because of a more challenging macro backdrop. Consumers starting to show signs of weakness. Excess savings likely exhausted by October. 
fiscal tailwinds fading, student loan repayments becoming a headwind again uh, in the fall. So what may look like it's ready for a catch up may in fact run out of gas rather quickly. I think we're we're in such a unique environment. And I think we all haven't really captured that because at the beginning of the year, everyone's like, we're going to have rate cuts by the end of the year. Unless some event happens, we're not having rate cuts at the end of the year. And the Fed presidents, multiple, have said, we're not going to have them in 2024. And so where I agree with Dubrovka that it's challenging is that, you know, industrials, materials have done well the past few weeks. But if you look at materials, industrial, healthcare, consumer staples, utilities and real estate, they're still negative and financials, they're negative for the year. And so I think on small caps, which we pay very close, close attention to, to me, where I still don't like the small cap trade, especially small cap value, small cap is a broad sector, is they're very economically sensitive. They're also rate sensitive because unlike an Apple or a Google or a Meta that can go do, don't even need to go to the debt market. And if they do, they're going to be right above, you know, wherever they are in the treasury curve. These small cap companies need to have, they're going to have higher rates. And so I think that if we go into the rest of the year, and we have slower growth, we have higher inflation than growth, because we're going to go down, Scott, in inflation the next few months. I think by the August, the August CPI, which would be for, for July, I think we'll be at about a three and a half. That will be the low, my opinion, because we'll have dropped off the last of 2022, April, May, and June. Then all of a sudden, if we continue to grow at 0.3 and 0.4, guess what? Inflation's going back up. And I promise Jay Powell has a poster of what happened in, in, during the 70s with inflation, where you went down and went right back up. I don't think this is even remotely like the 70s, but you do have to respect that. And so to me, what's challenging me as an asset allocator is like these areas are really cheap, the cyclicals in general. But I do think that they still have a headwind because you do want a GDP that's growing, not contracting. And, you do, and, and so I just don't think those ingredients are there to get cyclicals really pushed forward. And also you have home builders already up 30%. So, you know, they've done really well and I would call home builders very cyclical and they've totally bucked the trend. So I think it's a really dicey market to try to figure out what's gonna happen over the next six months because yeah. you have so many cross currents. Because Bill, the, the, those who are still negative on the market make the argument that those who keep saying that everything's great, that the economy is, <coughs> excuse me, gonna avoid a, a recession, that inflation's coming down, that the Fed isn't going to do anything uh, like it, it says, that, well, they're missing the boat on what's coming. Yeah. And that's kind of the idea of what Dubrovko uh, uh, puts forth today. It's like, we're going to have a much more challenging backdrop in the second half of the year, finally, that all of this stuff that's happened is going to catch up with the market, finally. It's just taken a lot longer than people thought. It's led to a false sense of bullishness in some cases. How would you address that? Well, I, I like to keep things simple. And so there's three things I'm looking at. And first, from a real technical basis, this market is, has broken out above 4,300. The bulls, in my opinion, are in the driver's seat while we stay above 4,300. The bears have no shot of taking the driver's seat unless we get below 4,200 in the S&P. Second, Fed Chair Powell has been tough. The Fed has to be tough on this market. They cannot be soft. And, and this is, reminds me just like 2018. In December 2018, they said they're going to hike two more times in 2019. They never hiked. They cut in July. 
So I think we're looking at something similar here. Those expectations are going to get digested. So you still don't think the Fed's going to do what it says? I, I don't think they will. I think they, I think we will get a hike in July right now, unless things really deteriorate over the next couple of weeks. But third, housing starts on Monday. That data piece, 21.7% jump month over month, that is disinflationary, in my opinion. The market hasn't digested it as disinflationary, but I think that is disinflationary. I agree with what Bryn is saying, that you're going to see inflation come down over the coming months. The Fed's going to digest that. And fourth is the kicker here, is the services. Powell said today in, in, in Congress that the services is still stubbornly high. We saw the May number come down a bit, or, or this number was recently in, in May, come down a bit. Um, prices, activity. Was, was some of the worst in, in a couple of years. We have flash PMIs on Friday. I'm really, tomorrow, I'm really curious what we see from services sector. You, you've, you know, Jim, made the argument that I'm tired of hearing all these people call for a recession because it still hasn't arrived. I'm tired of hearing all these people say the consumer's going to be tapped out because they're still seemingly spending wildly. Now, that's my word, obviously, not yours. Um, but the other side of that is that it's all still to come. Valuations are too rich where the market is now. The economy is weakening. Um, consumers are soon going to feel the, the pinch of all the spending that they've done. Yeah. And it's eventually just going to catch up with the market. It's just taken a lot longer than people thought. It's, it's, false, it's a false sense of security for people who think that everything's just great. Okay, let me take what you just said. It's all going to catch up with the market and modify it very slightly. It's all going to catch up with the economy. I think time frames matter here a lot, and the market is anticipatory. There's nothing revelatory in what I just said. The market anticipates. So the market is actually, I believe, not caring what's going to happen economically in the second half of this year. And you may well be very right, okay, that it does catch up and the consumer cracks and all those things. By the way, He'll make some good points about services and housing. I mean, some sectors of the economy are starting to come back. But let's work with the thesis that the economy does catch the cold in the second half of this year. If the Fed hikes one or two more times, the market right now, the market, not the economy, is looking forward to 2024 and saying that's over. Inflation may well be down. Profits are growing, possibly at least at today's estimates, double digits. And it likes that. So when I talked earlier about taking off the trade in the KRE. Yeah, you sold the regional banks. So let right. me explain it. Let me explain it. That's exquisitely short term. That always was a trade. It didn't work out. But if the Fed is going to do what it says it's going to do, and maybe that does affect the economy in the second half, it's certainly going to affect the regional bank index here in the in the immediate term. So that's one where I believe in the short term you can see that coming. Just think about this, right? Where did Silicon Valley Bank get into trouble? It's when the 10-year spiked and their liabilities and assets were totally mismatched well, I mean, on the balance sheet. You were playing sheet. with fire at that time, though, because you bought First Republic. In the, and clo in the, and in closed the it out. The, and closed in, it out the same week. No, I know, but it, that was in the eye of the storm. Yep. But but the point being is that that KRE index was always a trade. I'm looking at it right now, and by my tea leaves, it looks like the regional bank indexes are going to have. Uh, excuse me, the regional banks are going to have a pretty tough time over the coming months as deposit costs go up, as the tenure continues to go higher. Right, we've been talking about that a lot on the show. What what does that do to their assets and liabilities? It creates that mismatch again. So but I just, that's just not where I want to be. There can't be a disconnect though between all of that happening to the regional banks and then it not spilling into the broader economy. If credit's tighter, if you think the Fed is going to keep going and they're going to break more in the regional banks, is what you told our, our producers, 
then you, you, you can't at the same time think, oh, but that's walled off and everything's going to be great everywhere else. Um, you actually might. You Ow. actually might Ow. because of the time frame involved here. What the market is saying is take what you just said as gospel, all right, that lending standards are going to get tightened because the regional banking in, uh, industry is going to have Well, trouble. they're already getting tighter. Right. Got it. Okay. What the market is saying is let's look at 2024, a scant six months away. You know, the, the Fed is done. Whatever damage to the banking industry is done. By the way, I'm not giving up on J.P. Morgan City and Goldman Sachs. I think the big banks are going to continue to thrive at the smaller banks' peril. But the point being is that the market in general is going to be looking forward and seeing 2024 and liking what it sees. That's why I'm not giving up on the financials, industrials, materials, or energy. But see, Bryn, the other question is about valuation, of which Adam Jonas over at Morgan Stanley today, obviously the influential auto analyst there, he's loved Tesla for a long time. He still likes it, but he downgrades it today. Why? Valuation. Raises the price target to 250 from 200. It's just a good opportunity to assess one of the other key questions in this market as to whether valuations are too stretched, not from a broader sense per se. We, we can have that argument as well or, or conversation, but from the micro sense, individual stocks like a Tesla, for example, which you own. I did not see this 111 percent year to date rally coming is what he said. We're not trying to call the end to the Tesla rally, but I mean, 100% is 100% and a valuation that's richer today than it was before by a lot. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, Scott, price matters. So in the short term multiples, the market doesn't care about multiples in the short term. It just doesn't. It cares about sentiment and positioning. And, and you know, Tesla got caught up in all of the AI excitement. You know, I thought Tesla was cheap when it hit 110 around the Twitter nonsense, and I bought it at 120 and then sold calls. And so I continue to sell calls against part of the position and then hold another, the other part of the position. So I think it is pricey here. And so in September, when my calls expired at this level, that part of the that part of my stock will get called away. And so I think that with Tesla, where I think it frustrates the bears on Tesla is people like play this stock. It's continuously the number one or two most actively traded stock in the options market. And so I think that as China continues to give stimulus, and we like to talk about EVs in the US, EVs in the US are about 9% of the global market. China this year will produce 9 million EVs. They now just also gave another EV tax credit to the Chinese makers. I don't think Tesla was part of that. So clearly when earnings come out, by the way, Scott, for all of these tech companies, I think NVIDIA aside, next quarter, they can't just like talk about AI. They got to start delivering because you can't just have pure multiple expansion and talk about stuff. You always have to deliver the goods. So I think Tesla is an interesting name to play in the shorter term between about 150. I don't think we're going to hit 300 unless we get this another thrush forward to in AI, but I think it's overdone for now. So I think it's a really, really smart call that he's done on the stock. Bill, you own it as well. Yeah. This, all went, this will not end well. And I mean it from a different perspective. From a shareholder who says but that. I, I am not talking about Tesla in general. Bryn said something very important here, positioning. And, and I think Tesla, the multiple here is, is high, but I think the momentum's there. Now, when we started the year out, everybody was promised a free lunch, 5% free lunch and collect it. Now the market's run. I mean, you have the NASDAQ up 40%, the S&P up 20%, and people have missed out. When people start opening their statements after the end of this quarter, 
Positioning is going to matter, and they're going to force some of their managers, people in the money, into, into the market. Tesla could easily be one of those names. Some of these AI names could easily become buying. You're going to buy Tesla uh, up 112% year to date, a stock that had the 13-day winning streak and added $200 billion in market cap. So when I say this one, well, billion dollars in market cap in 13 days. I, I mean it. Well, I, I I mean it for those that are going to be buying at these levels now. I'm looking at the momentum here in Tesla. It was a tactical play for me, and I'm going to watch it. As long as it stays out above 230 or so, I'm, I'm very happy with it. And I, I think that the multiple at 70 is important to understand, but it's what are we, what, what are we judging it off of? It's not a car maker only. I think it's a software company. I think that you have the industrial matter, manufacturing part in there. I think you also you have so, uh, 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 the EV, the charging, the whole, the whole narrative around that. And it's, it's a ecosystem. So the, the multiple of 70, there's a lot, by a lot of consideration. It could be, I mean, you look at these software companies, there's been times where ServiceNow and CRM have been 50 to 70 multiples, and those were perfectly fine. Josh, I guess then the, the, the next obvious question is, what else needs to be reassessed, if anything, due to this multiple expansion that we've seen? Apple now 30 times. Microsoft is 33 and a half times. We obviously don't have to go through NVIDIA, which is 56 times, which is, you know, is obviously not as expensive on a valuation basis that it was, you know, right before it had the earnings and the incredible guidance that it gave. But you get the point. Well, this is what, this is what I'm trying to say when I'm talking about small and mid caps, because that multiple expansion can't continue. It is not going to be... Uh, you're not going to get the commensurate revenue and earnings growth from these companies that we're talking about to to make those expectations make sense. So if you're saying if you're thinking there's another leg higher in the bull market, I really wouldn't look at it in Apple. But I just want to make the point that Apple could take a breather without completely falling apart and the rest of the market can catch up. And that to me, that's the strongest case the bulls have. And I think in this conversation, we're having a little bit of trouble with, with cause and effect. We have it backwards. Uh, you think about small caps in, in, a, in a bad economy. That's not been the issue for small caps over the last three years. They have been huge underperformers. Charlie Grant has a great story in the Wall Street Journal today about this topic. The problem for small caps has been inflation. If inflation is coming in, that's a more powerful driver for those stocks than the economy moderating. So just think about uh, the Russell 2000 is still 24 percent below its peak from 2021. It hasn't even come close to the comeback rally that we've seen in the large caps. For me, that's the bull case. The Russell 2000 has been yeah. lagging the S&P 500 yes, it, it makes by seven sense. percentage points a year. It a makes year. perfect sense wait, that that's, that's the one. bull case. Two. It may be the only okay, bull wait. case left at wait, this wait. point because the market has run a lot. No, it's not going. the only bull case. Cause and effect. <laughs> Last Thursday, the Federal Reserve told us, uh, looking at household net worth, in the first quarter alone, January, February, and March, household net worth up $3 trillion net, or 2.1%, in one quarter. And that's after being up $1.6 trillion in the prior quarter. How did that happen? The value of equity holdings came back. The stock market added to household wealth to the tune of $2.4 trillion. It would have been higher overall if not for home prices coming in. Home prices are no longer coming in. 
I don't know if you've noticed, we have three months worth of inventory. So now you've got six months of rising stock prices. You've got a stabilizing housing market with literally no supply. You're going to see that wealth effect from that growth in household wealth. That is a counterbalance to the narrative that the consumer is running out of cash. Some consumers are running out of cash, okay? Some. Uh, so that's not the only bull case here that we've got um, small caps rallying. The bull case is that household finances are not deteriorating, which right. is what you would need to see in order to call for this drastic economic slowdown. Sure, which is why you have people like Dubrovko Lakos, who we mentioned at the top of the program, who, by the way, will be on closing bell with me today at three o'clock, who says, yes, that's all great, but it's not going to last. And if it doesn't last, then that's the problem for the market. But we can discuss that because the answer is unknowable at this point. Let's it never this. lasts. Let's <laughs> take let, let's take a quick break. We come back. We have moves in the energy space from Jim. I got another move from Bill Baruch that plays right into this conversation. We'll do it next. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. Let's do some of these uh, other committee moves uh, that we have today. So you sold Broadcom. Yes. Plays right out of the conversation we were having about, you know, perceived froth in the market. You sold it last week. I find this interesting because people say of Broadcom, yes, the stock's had a great run, but it's the cheapest one of the cheapest ways, pure plays, they've said on this program, to play AI. Yeah. So yeah. it's run a lot, but it, it's the valuation's not like crazy. I'm not the less concerned about the valuation and for but my entry in this was a tactical play and I wanted more semiconductor exposure. As you, as you know, we've been weighted almost 25% semis. And I I think from here it was a very tactical play when I bought uh, Tesla a few weeks back. I was another tactical play. So I waited for this this oomph and I think we're going to get multiple oomphs higher in, in the market and then they're going to be digested. So last week when we when we had that oomph higher, some chase, some FOMO, some short covering, uh, I used that opportunity to monetize Broadcom. Uh, there's going to be a consolidation like we're seeing right now. I don't think this bull market is done. And I think we'll go we'll go higher. And, and after oomphs like that, when you get these, this punch higher, you know, it's time to take a little off the table. All right, Jimmy, your moves are in the energy space, aside from what we mentioned already in the, in the KRE. So you sold Kinder Morgan, KMI, you bought Chenier LNG. Why? So Kinder Morgan was much more of a dividend play. It had that nice, tasty 6.5% dividend yield. 
And I see in LNG growth as opposed to dividend income. First off, a note here. The stock has come down 20-odd percent from its high on the perception that uh, low natural gas prices are going to hurt them in the future. That is not, natural gas pricing is not the reason to be in Chenier. Uh, natural gas exports are the reason to be in Chenier, and that is absolutely a growth industry. As Europe deals with the fact that it's not getting Russian gas anytime soon, and Asia continues to need LNG. This is a growth industry that Chenier is expanding into over the next decade. So forget natural gas pricing, even though that's given me an entry point. This is a growth industry. And a hat tip to Josh, who's been in this as well. Don't want to ignore that. More on KMI, because you just glossed over that, really. Why did you decide to sell that? I, I actually like KMI, but it's just too sedate. I'm getting that dividend yield and nothing more in terms of the share price. So, yes, that has a stabilizing effect on the overall portfolio volatility, but I'm ready to give that up for a little bit more oomph in terms of less dividend income, but more share price appreciation in LNG. All right, let's get some of the broader headlines now with Contessa Brewer. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Rescuers may have made a potentially grim discovery in the search for the missing Titanic tourist sub. U.S. Coast Guard officials say experts are evaluating a debris field discovered by a remote operating vehicle today. They plan to share an update later this afternoon. We will monitor that. The sub, of course, vanished Sunday with a five-person crew on board while exploring the wreckage of the Titanic. The Supreme Court ruled against the Navajo Nation today in a water rights dispute. The tribe accused the federal government of breaking an 1868 treaty by failing to ensure water access across its 17 million acre reservation that covers parts of Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico. But Justice Kavanaugh, writing for the majority, said the treaty never guaranteed that. And in a five to four ruling, the justices ordered the tribe's lawsuit to be thrown out. A massive hailstorm at the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado last night injured dozens of people attending a Louis Tomlinson concert. According to medical crews, seven people ended up in the hospital with injuries ranging from broken bones to cuts. Crazy. That's not something you sign up for when you expect to go out and see a concert. And look at the flooding there. Scott? I saw a lot of that video, too, um, Contessa. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Contessa Brewer, thank you. Up next, news just crossing on Amazon this moment. The company making an even bigger bet on AI and the cloud. Deirdre Bosa is going to be right here at Post 9 with those details next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back. We have a news alert on Amazon. Deirdre Bosa right here with us at Post 9 with the details. What do we have? Yeah, good morning. I came all the way here to deliver it to you in yeah. person. Uh, Amazon is putting $100 million into what it is calling a generative AI innovation center. So essentially, it is building a program that will give tools to its AWS, its cloud customers, to build their own gener generative AI programs themselves. Uh, they named Twilio and Highspot as being among the first to work with this program. The key takeaway here, though, guys, is that Amazon is leaning into the shift. It's going on the offensive, right? It has a little bit of catching up to do, at least on Wall Street it's perceived, sort of lagging behind Microsoft and Google in terms of this big generative AI shift. Yesterday in San Francisco, I was able to sit down with AWS CEO Adam Silipsky to discuss the news. 
Choice is such an important right. concept here because otherwise you ask yourself the question, well, where are the different runners three steps into a 10K race? Does it really matter? The point is you're three steps in and it's a 10K race. Right. And what, what people need today is choice and to be able to experiment and to be able to figure out you know, what different types of models, what different types of use cases are most powerful. And that's why customers are so excited to work with AWS for generative AI. So, Scott, gentlemen, basically, you know, where Google and Microsoft have had these flashy sort of consumer-facing chatbots and BARD and ChatGPT, Amazon is saying, we're going to do this on the back end. We're actually going to give our AWS customers the talent, the tools to develop an AI strategy, whether that's open or closed source. You mentioned, did you say Twilio? Yes. As well, that they're initially going to work they're with as yes. part of this? I've just mentioned, I thought that's what you said. I was just looking at the stock to see if there was any residual uh, reaction here. Not much. They're customers, much. right? So the proof will be in the pudding, right? They're going to be working with Amazon, but it's not like Amazon is leaning on their technology to do Yeah, that. so I mean, obviously, you better have, if you're a large cap company at this point, you, you better have an AI strategy, and you better be able to articulate mm -hmm. what the broader picture is going to look like for your business in order to get the rewards that other stocks have been given mm -hmm. for those who have told that story well. And it's becoming important to put actual dollars behind it, right? And I think that's why Amazon's coming out and they're saying we're putting 100 million into this because it's not good enough just to talk about it anymore. You have to show that you're putting actual investment. And then, of course, the next step, how do you monetize that, right? It's too early even for Microsoft and Google, but like an NVIDIA, right, kind of changed the game there, showing that you better show that monetization sooner rather than later. Josh, what's your take here as an Amazon shareholder? Uh, I like it. Stock is making a multi-month high here on the news, and uh, I don't think you buy Amazon specifically for AI, but as we have talked about on numerous occasions, Amazon has its own AI chips, it's building its own workflows, its own ecosystem, its own environment, and there is no future in which Amazon is not a prominent player in AI considering the centrality of the, the cloud to everything that people are going to want to use and build. So uh, good news. We'll take it. Yeah, three and a half percent. As a matter of fact, the Amazon target goes to 180 today at loop. Reiterated overweight at Wells, 159. Reiterated overweight at Morgan Stanley at 150. You own it too. Yes, we own it. I'd love to see this. Now, we, we own NVIDIA, and NVIDIA's big difference maker for this move was, this, I think, the software suite. There's no second or third place. It's NVIDIA. So Amazon getting something in the back end like this, they're moving towards that, and they're going to be a difference maker. This is exciting, exciting to see. I think there's upside on this. I think you highlighted it well, Dee, that the next sort of frontier of the headlines and hype is about the business transformation that occurs, mm -hmm. not the consumer co-pilot. Right. That all of the hype has, has really been around. When we were out in Silicon Valley and we were at the bureau with you and, and we were discussing this with some of our guests, Neva, for example, and, and Snowflake. And the way that these entrepreneurs and these companies are thinking about how they're going to transform you know, B2B and the more business-associated uh, aspects of this, not yeah. so much just the consumer hey, this is all sexy and looks great as, as what well, it's going to change our lives. Right, but the consumer product, that chatbot, has kind of grabbed investors' imagination, right? Because you can just insert a chat GPT into whatever you want to build within your own business. So this is a little bit more nuanced. And I think another key part of this is 
AWS has a ton of data. If data is the gold of this generative AI shift, no one has more of it than Amazon. So they're going to be able to help their companies leverage that on the back end. Leads to some other questions. Do companies want to trust Amazon with all of that data? But, you know, they would say that it's very securely protected, even more so than some of the other products out there. But they do work with an Anthropic and a Stability AI to build these models and help build these tools for their customers. I appreciate you coming here to the Stock Exchange on set with us. Dear Jabosa. In the house here at the NYSE. Coming up, a new ETF aimed at investors looking to diversify away from tech. We'll give you those details when we come back on the half. And we're back on Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. It's often said that software has eaten the world, but it's not the only investable asset. Some argue that hard assets like real estate and infrastructure are an important diversifier away from technology. Let's talk with Dan Foley. He's CBRE Investment Management Portfolio Manager for the newly launched IQ CBRE Real Estate Asset ETF. The symbol is IQRA. This is an actively managed equity strategy invested in globally uh, assets tied to real assets, infrastructure, and real estate. Dan, you launched this a month ago uh, in the midst of this tech frenzy, but you've been making a case on the rounds, uh, on the talk shows and everything. You say inflation makes hard assets a great investment. Make that case. Yeah, look, I think the reality is, you know, investors, including large institutions, are allocating the real assets for that inflation hedging, you know, profile. Um, And it's important in today's world, clearly. We think that a real assets investment needs to contemplate the right form of real assets, and we see the opportunity in areas like real estate and infrastructure. It's a long story. We've heard this many times, but now we're seeing higher interest rates, and they seem to be impacting the real estate market. REITs are down this week on concerns of higher rates. Uh, They're notable underperformers. Treasuries uh, are creeping towards the higher end of their recent range. Uh, We had Nassim Talib on this morning, uh, the author of The Black Swan. He was on Squawk Box this morning saying, to be careful about real estate and hard assets because they were unstable because of higher rates potentially. Is this this concern you? You're launching this now, making a claim for hard assets. Yeah, we, we view, I think, the other side of that, which is the opportunity, right? That kind of environment has led to very discounted valuations. You're trading at 20% discounts and at asset value on asset values already written down. History tells us these assets will significantly outperform and offer the opportunity for double-digit type upside. Uh, in the go forward. And alongside that, you have very long-term growth, digital transformation, decarbonization. These are areas that are influencing the outcomes of these companies and we think is an opportunity investors should have more exposure to. I want to show them what's in this fund. It's got real estate companies, uh, public storage. There's an obvious one. That's a longtime favorite for a lot of people. Uh, it's uh, got, That's a big read. It's got infrastructure plays uh, like Crown Castle that's out there. Uh, you see NextEra Energy um, and you see Equinix. We had the CEO on uh, today, data centers right there, WC Energy Group. I don't see any real commodities, though. I don't see Freeport MacMoran. Uh, I don't see oil stocks. So why are commodities sort of left out of a hard asset portfolio? That's right. We think investors should have the best form of real assets. And the risk and return profile over time, we think, has been best suited within real estate and infrastructure. We think the opportunity set is the biggest and brightest in those areas of the market. And that's why we're focused there. And, and, you know, again, some of the areas, those names you named, you know, these are the 800-pound gorillas in, in their space, leaders in decarbonization, you know, digital transformation, 
um, best-in-class balance sheets. These are not the kinds of real estate, I think, that headlines are making people afraid of. And we see a differentiated outcome for this. But commodities are classic hard asset. I'm not trying to be argumentative, but Freeport owns copper, for example. Are you saying these underperform or you want more high-tech, newer stuff like a a REIT, for example, an infrastructure? We want hard assets that are cash-flowing. Right, that provide an income, that provide an outsized income component to your total return. And we think that's given the best ride over time, and we think that's still the case uh, going forward. Okay, we're going to have a lot more on this discussion about hard assets as an alternative investment to technology that's coming up on ETF Edge, 1.10 p.m. today, Eastern Time. Now, Dan's going to be joined by Tom Leiden, the Vetify vice chairman. We'll talk about how the rise in interest rates may be affecting ETFs, And we'll also talk about that spate of new Bitcoin ETF filings. What's going on there? ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff, Bob. We'll see you then. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Coming up, our chart of the day. It's Boeing, biggest Dow laggard right now. We'll tell you exactly what is weighing on that stock. Of course, get reaction from Farmer Jim, who owns it. We're back after this. Uh, Check out shares of Boeing. Our chart of the day today, that stock is the biggest laggard in the Dow. It's off the lowest levels of the session, still down two and a third percent, though. A key part supplier, Spirit Aerosystems, stops production at a major plant. Workers voting to strike. Uh, They make the fuselage, Jimmy, right, for the Boeing 737 MAX. And the 787. They're a very important supplier. Used to be a part of Boeing. This is frustrating news. I do think uh, strongly that this is another incident in the two steps forward, one step back uh, share price motif that's been going on for the last year with Boeing. Now, why do I say that? First and foremost, this is a different problem than two years ago when the FAA was not approving the 737 MAX to even fly and was not approving the 787 to be delivered. Those were problems with no end in sight. This is something that's likely to be resolved soon. Now, why do I say that? Because this, the union uh, leaders had actually approved the contract. The union voted it down. That's just part of negotiations. You got to go back over the next few days, give a little bit more on the company side and get the get this across the finish line. But that's something that I suspect is going to be solved in the next few days, if not maybe a couple of weeks. And then where you are, Scott, is over the weekend, the head of uh, Mr. Deal, who's the head of commercial airplanes at Boeing, said they're imminently going to be raising production of the 737 MAX. That increases their free cash flow. And that's what this stock is trading on. I do strongly think this is just one step back in the two steps forward, one step back motif. Josh, I just go to you on the, the ITA. I mean, we, we talk about Boeing in terms of defense as well. Uh, the ITA was your stock summit pick. You still like it? Yeah, I do. It's up 21% over the last year, about 13.5% year to date. Boeing is the second largest weighting in the CTF. It's about 17% of the market cap just by virtue of its size. Um, but it's one of 40 holdings. And Raytheon is a bigger holding in there. Um, So the reason I own ITA is not to get exposure to Boeing. The reason I own ITA is to get exposure to bombs and tanks and planes and guns. And really, that is uh, the trade here. So Boeing's been a distraction for this index, quite frankly. Uh, It's had some rallies, but it's just been a terrible stock for a long time. Probably still will be for the foreseeable future. Um, I actually wish it wasn't as big of a weighting in the index, but... I, there's nothing I can really do about it. I do think, though, the strength in those other stocks, if you look at them chart by chart, starting with Waytheon and Lockheed, L3 Harris, General Dynamics, Transdime, 
Most of those charts are pointing up and to the right. And I think overall, uh, Boeing will not be enough to stop me from staying with this, with this index. Pretty ugly my, words about Boeing. I know, my buddy. My buddy is slamming me. What am I going to do with that? Um, well, he's right. I'm not slamming been, you. you. What are you, okay, what are you the Josh, CEO Josh. of Boeing? Josh, Josh, I hear I was having calm, fun calm, with you. Calm down. I'm like All total, right. I'm like I, Zen, man. I'm Zen on Boeing. You know why I'm Zen on Boeing? Because it's up 51% in a year. It's up 9% year to date, even after today's decline. I will, I will agree with Josh. It's been a distraction, right? All this news flow that comes out sort of hides the fact that it's actually been a good stock recently. Yeah. Bill, you, you recently it has. It's down 50 percent since February of 2019. And uh, it's not a slam on you, Jimmy, at all. I wish the stock wasn't in the index. We're all good. We're all good. Raytheon. Yeah, I, I'm with that narrative. I love what, how Josh put it. I, I'm in there for the bombs and the tanks and what's going on geopolitically. As for Boeing, you know, there's too many moving parts there. I, I think, you know, they do have that nice backlog um, for, for demand if they can ever get it really done. But I, Raytheon is where is our horse in the race. All right, we uh, will take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Big show, 3 o'clock Eastern, closing bell. J.P. Morgan's Dubrovko Lakos. I told you that note that had us talking today. Well, you're going to hear directly from him at 3 p.m., Richard Fisher, what's the Fed really going to do in July and beyond? We'll ask the former Dallas Fed president, Joe T. Anker Crawford with us as well. Look forward to seeing all of you in a couple hours' time. Bryn, final trade. You're up first. If you missed the round in tech or want a more defensive way to play it, JEPQ. It owns an ETF, owns the Qs, and then sells out-of-the-money calls. has a total return of 22% year-to-date, and it has around a 10% distribution yield annually paid monthly. All right, thank you. Josh Brown. Uh, I would say Oracle. I think the rally is intact, and every time there's AI buzz, this stock continues to be part of that story. So I'm staying long. Jimmy, you are too, I gather, and you're Oracle. <laughs> I am indeed. I think it's a great stock to hold for the long term. Also feel that way about Alaska Air. Estimates have been going up all year. Passenger traffic hanging in there. You know, stock's up 15% year-to-date. Does that catch anybody by surprise? Recession might airline play. stock doing well? Yeah. <laughs> don't, yeah. Take, don't take that bait yeah, so quickly. Does. Well, don't throw it out there so easily. <laughs> throw chum in the water. What happens? Bill. Bill, what do you well, got? We got uh, MassTech, MTZ. This infrastructure company gets 50% of their revenues from multi-year long-term agreements. They cover communications. They cover clean energy, net with natural gas pipelines and renewables. It gets above uh, two-year high. It gets out above 120. Look out above. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. See you on Closing Bell Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.